Welcome to Cosmophonia. I'm Meredith. And I'm Gabe. And today we're talking about Paul McCartney's song, The Kiss of Venus. Sort of a follow-up to our last episode conversation, but also a great little astronomy song itself. So we've been a little obsessed with this song. Yeah, we we listened to it, and then we decided to learn it, and then last month when we did the quadrivium, I was kind of flipping through that quadrivium book that I have, which includes the six different books on the quadrivium, including a little book of coincidences, which is the one about astronomy. And I, I was flipping through trying to look for like good examples of number manifesting in space and time. And I just happened to pick this one that I didn't explain properly at all. And we will probably get around to it today. And in my eye snagged on it because it was called The Kiss of Venus. And I was like, yeah, I like that Paul McCartney song. Well, I looked it up the other day and apparently he has that book, The Little Book of Coincidences. And this song is entirely inspired, at least lyrically, by that. I mean, that makes sense because I think that John Martineau kind of made up this poetic term, the kiss of Venus, to describe the Venus pentagram or whatever. Which we'll explain. Which we will explain. (laughs) Yeah, and sidebar, I kind of just love the idea that we, like, I don't know Paul McCartney, but I love that at the very least, we all have in common that we have this little book. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty happy thing. Yeah. But yeah, but so there's this phenomenon that we like, that Paul McCartney likes, that John Martineau likes, Mm -hmm. that we alluded to last time. It belongs in this book because it's one of these weird resonance phenomena, or at least it's a quasi-resonance. And I think we mentioned this last time, resonances, or briefly we mentioned that like resonances are common in astrophysical systems, and they happen whenever you've got bodies in motion that are gravitationally bound together closely so you can have these situations where the motions of one body bear a proportional a special simple proportional relationship to the motions of another Mm -hmm. um so one of the best examples of this is actually jupiter's four largest moons Jupiter exerts a sufficiently strong pull on these moons that their orbits bear a very close proportional relationship. One moves twice as fast as the other, which moves twice as fast as the other. And there's some additional kind of relationships. So whenever you have an exact thing like that, twice as fast, three times. Yeah, because isn't like Neptune and Pluto three to two? Yeah, right. So there are lots of these, all kinds of things like this, and we call those things resonances. And then we have things that are close resonances where it is a simple proportional relationship but it's not exact Mm -hmm. and that's what we have between earth and venus where they have an almost perfect simple proportional relationship and do you want to tell us what they are Sure, yeah, and a funny thing about this book, which it really does go into detail about all these different kinds of resonances, as well as other 
things that are probably more properly called coincidences, like the fact that the sun and the moon appear almost exactly the same to us in the sky. Like, that didn't have to be. No, that's like a pure, beautiful gift of nature. And that's why we get perfect solar eclipses, which, what is happening over us next year? Yes. We're very excited. Very excited. (laughs) Anyway, I was going to say the funny thing about this book is that a lot of times the thing that they're talking about can manifest as exact like what you said an almost exact simple proportion and so they have these brackets that they put in after every single one saying like how close it is like 99.9 percent or 99.6 percent so it's like it's not exact but it's very close it's very close it's enough to make it probably a coincidence as opposed to like an actual causal thing but the kind of coincidence that makes you say, or is it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> In fact, I'm pretty sure at some point during the book, the author writes, I don't remember what the thing was, but he's like, this is like really remarkable that this happened, but nobody's studying this in science. So if anybody wants to, <laughs> you know, figure it out. Um, all right. So I thought I would just read a little, a few passages maybe out of this book to kind of see what Paul McCartney might have been looking at when he was thinking about the lyrics for the song. Other than the sun and the moon, the brightest point in the sky is Venus, the morning and evening star. She is our closest neighbor and kisses us every 584 days as she passes between us and the sun. So, of course, this is talking about the fact that the Earth and Venus are both orbiting around the sun, but Venus is faster. So, every once in a while, she laps us, and as she laps us, she gets pretty close, like closer than like when she's on the other side of the sun, obviously. And that's what he's referring to here as a kiss. Yeah. And when that happens, this is also what causes what in astrology they call retrograde, because it looks like um, it's oh. hard to explain <laughs> this like without seeing a picture of it. Maybe I'll link it to a graphic where it shows like why this happens. And, and for the record, it's in both astrology and astronomy. Oh, yeah. right? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> because true. It is it is an actual phenomenon that you see on the sky. Yes, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Anyway, I'll go back to it. Um, Each time one of these kisses occurs, the Sun, Venus, and Earth line up two-fifths of a circle around, so a pentagram of conjunctions is drawn over exactly eight Earth years, or 13 Venus, Venusian, Venusian years. And then it goes on to point out that these are, these numbers 5, 8, and 13 are part of the Fibonacci sequence, which he just started obsessing about, like, a few pages earlier as these, like, numbers that somehow manifest in nature just a lot. Yeah, and this is one of these things where, like, the astronomer in me kind of pauses for a second. It's like, okay, well, yeah, that's cool. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that has any real physical ramifications, necessarily. Like, you know, hence it belongs in a book of coincidence and not your standard introduction to astronomy, because it's a thing that happens, but Mm -hmm. I don't it's not obvious to the my astronomer brain that it matters. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean I kind of agree. Like I've always found these like looking for number symbolism in everything to be like, but but why? And I think that I, something being interesting and cool and just pretty can be fine. Like it doesn't have to have any kind of deeper meaning. Yeah, like, we're not complaining, like we said, we're not complaining that eclipses happen, and no. we're not complaining that there's this kind of beautiful, simple, numerical relationship. It doesn't... That can be sufficient, regardless of whether or not there's a physical 
reason behind it. Mm -hmm. It's just nice. Yeah, it is. It (laughs) is nice. And the great thing about this book is that every page has, like, a bunch of diagrams and pictures and, like, geometrical things. And I can't show you them because this is an audio-only podcast. (laughs) Um, However, there is actually a partial scan of this page up on the internet and I will link it in the show notes so that you can see it but it makes this little like star slash flower looking thing like a spirograph a spirograph yeah yeah this is they made it like a spirograph and then on the next page they did a similar kind of spirograph recreation where they draw lines between where earth is and where venus is throughout the whole cycle and then it also creates this this kind of flower actually um paul mccartney described it as a lotus which is interesting mm. i don't think oh. it, that came from this book but he oh. made that connection paul, paul would have been around a, a lotus figure or two <laughs> in his life yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um so he's also describing these kind of resonances i suppose between different planets as well and he calls them all dances which i think is really fun because he's really looking at this as the universe's aesthetic how can we describe it as aesthetic so on the next page um he also says venus rotates extremely slowly on her own axis in the opposite direction to most rotations in the solar system her rotation period is precisely two-thirds of an earth year a musical fifth because he always has to draw it back to how this relates to music. This closely harmonizes with the dance opposite, so that every time Venus and Earth kiss, Venus does so with her same face pointing at Earth. Paint a spot on Venus's surface as she passes in front of the sun, and every time she lines up with the sun again as seen from Earth, the spot will be pointing at you again. Over the eight Earth years of the five kisses, Venus spins on her own axis 12 times in 13 years. And then he says, all beautiful musical numbers. And again, he's talking about the Fibonacci sequence because yeah. he's obsessing about that and the, the golden section as well. Yeah. It's not, obvi- we were saying, like, it's not obvious to me that 13 is a particularly musical number no. <laughs> for, any, for any reason. But I think he's thinking of music in terms of, again, that quadrivium kind of thing. So any, yeah. any kind of like fun connections you can find between how these numbers manifest is going to be musical and harmonic. I mean, and it is in the sense of, like we were talking about last time, actually, it is in the sense of, you know, the quadrivium, see, I think this is, this gets that kind of an important difference between sort of modern thinking about astrophysics and the more ancient way of thinking about it, where any kind of proportional relationship has significance in multiple regimes so you know we might say today well yeah i don't know how often the number 13 comes up in our thinking about musical structure but that doesn't mean that to uh, an ancient or medieval or even a renaissance thinker the number 13 wouldn't have some significance for some reason even if they were kind of constructing a reason to sort of find a home for 13 mm. i mean and that is something that we still do today i mean I can come up with ways in which the number 13 has musical significance and then you could come up with a language around it. It would be something strange and microtonal perhaps <laughs> in the way that I'm imagining it in my brain right now. Yep. But I mean, usually when we talk about these things, we're still kind of stuck with the Pythagorean numbers. 
you know something up through five and then beyond five it gets you're like why would you need that if you can't make it out of a two a three or a five <laughs> and 13 is definitely beyond that oh that would make it an interesting rhythm 13 eight Ooh, 13 great <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, oh, yeah, thank you. We forgot about rhythm again. I kept thinking yeah. about pitch. We were, poor, we're, we're so conditioned to not think about rhythm as much as we should. I love rhythm. Rhythm is the best. Yeah. Rhythm and uh, timbre. Those are the two best musical elements. Yeah. Well, and Paul doesn't seem to latch too much onto the rhythm in this song. No. He does think about timbre a little bit. Mm -hmm. There's a harpsichord that appears in the middle of the song, which mm -hmm. is very nice. I think it's mostly harmony that he gets... And melody. And melody. Harmony and melody that he gets really fixated on. Mm -hmm. I mean, we know this in part because the harmony and melody are both really cool. Also because one of the recurring lyrics is that they make a most harmonic sound. Mm -hmm. And I, I find myself pausing on that because it's not that they make a harmonious sound. He deliberately chooses the word harmonic sound. Mm -hmm. The sound is harmony. It's not that it's like harmony. It's not that it goes together well. It is harmonic. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. And also, harmonic is, a, is also a physical term. If things have a harmonic relationship, that is actually talking about those simple proportional relationships, mm -hmm. which, to be fair, can involve 13 in modern thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, that's enough with that one. <laughs> Obsessing over with the 13. But, like, the harmony of the song... I don't know about you, it's part of why I've been obsessing over it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I was noodling it on the piano earlier, and I noticed that it's in the key of E major, and in the second phrase it goes from a minor 5 to a major 4 to the tonic. It goes from B minor to A major to E. strange because typically I mean in traditional tonal music you would probably not use a lot of minor fives in a you know diatonic kind of typical progression usually it's a major five even if you're in a minor key right well and just to and I'll translate it a little bit so Thank we're talking you. about a we're talking about a progression that goes from yeah B minor to A major to E yeah, I mean, like you're saying, like we wouldn't expect that B minor. We wouldn't expect that B minor, especially given the way he kind of sets it up. The song starts with like some really normal stuff, mm -hmm. and then you you get surprised by this sudden minor triad that not only do you not expect, but it's sufficiently startling that for it to then go to four, right? That's the the A major chord. It's it, you're kind of uncertain about where he's going with it, and it's an interesting sort of subversion of what's actually a very normal progression. Mm -hmm. Because if that had been a regular five chord, a regular B major chord, you'd have E A E B A E, which is a blues progression. Mm -hmm. So it's like he changed the quality of one of the chords and gives it a completely different sort of flavor overall. Mm -hmm. And this is something that happens in every section of the song. Mm -hmm. There are very traditional chord progressions or things that start life as traditional chord progressions, but then he throws in one little twist. And usually it's borrowed from the minor key, like the 
parallel minor. Yeah, that's where that B minor chord comes mm -hmm. from. In the we, we've been debating also whether to call these things verses or choruses. It's got a funny structure. And yeah, we're not, we'll, we'll talk about yeah. that. Yeah. So then in the second section, you've got minor four chords, which again, a sort of expected thing, but then they create this other transition that even though they're a little bit normal, the way he juxtaposes them results in this kind of uncanny shift where you're like, this feels like something familiar, but it's really not. Mm -hmm. um, where it goes from A minor to C sharp minor. I don't know. I think the moral of the story is there's a lot of like weird chord stuff that's not actually that weird. Mm -hmm. He's just put them together in a way that's very, very crafty. Yeah. And what you mentioned earlier, I think, is very true is that if you just played the chord progressions, that's fine. But the thing that really like makes it move from one to the other is the voice leading, is the melody. Yeah. So if you had different chords, obviously, you'd have to have a different melody because it really it really does not go... Like, I tried actually playing it normal, quote-unquote, and the melody... <laughs> it doesn't work. It, 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 the melody goes off in its own place yeah. if you do that. It, it doesn't fit. But... Um, oh, speaking of the melody, I think this is my little idea. I think that he kind of foreshadows the use of the borrowed chords or the the altered chords actually in the melody right at the beginning. Oh yeah, yeah, because he has this series of like three chromatic notes that he uses twice, and I will we will we'll render them. We will render them <laughs> for you here. So both of those little chromatic moments draw attention to these other notes from, from the minor scale that are later going to be prominently used in these other harmonies. So giving you a little taste of that. Yeah. And also, uh, these are all special touches that make this song particularly unique. They also happen to be things that Paul McCartney has done a lot of for a very long time. Mm -hmm. I teach a Beatle class, and one of the things that I always teach the Beatle students is that this is part of their success, is kind of taking generally traditional chord progressions, but figuring out subtle ways of altering them that make them Beatle progressions. So Can't Buy Me Love is a great example of that, where it's a, this is another Paul song, where mm -hmm. it's basically a blues until you get to the chorus, Can't Buy Me Love, and then all of a sudden you've got these chords that have nothing to do with blues language in multiple regards. Mm. Uh, but of course they fit perfectly. Um, and now we understand them as fitting perfectly because we've heard can't buy me love a, a billion times but also because on some level we're able to perceive these underlying structures right even with his alterations we've heard the basic structures in many contexts so it thus becomes really exciting when we hear these modifications that sound really novel because he's a really skilled songwriter and he knows when and where to deploy them and also, so one of the other things that comes up in that class a lot, in the Beatle class, and also in thinking about this kind of music theory stuff, people will always be quick to say that, you know, Paul doesn't know how to read music, he's probably not thinking about any of this stuff, blah, blah, blah. And that is true. Um, <laughs> and that's fine. He's, does, he's done plenty well without knowing how to read music or no... That's just bypassing <laughs> the middleman. Yeah, man. right. <laughs> Which is kind of how he described it mm. uh, when he first was considering the notion of learning about, about theory. He was like, why do I need this? But wh what is true, though, is that when you actually play these chords on the guitar, 
and if any of you are guitarists out there when i was naming the chords you'll know they're not hard chords to play on the guitar so it's sort of less i think about how he is navigating the intellectual side of oh it's a modal mixture and i'm borrowing this chord and it's more like well wait a minute if i move my fingers this way mm, right mm -hmm. instead of that way where they would normally go i get this kind of great shift in the light and the color and and one that ties really nicely to this kind of, it's a weird melody the first time i heard the song i was like paul where are you where are you <laughs> going with this but it's really beautiful and strange and when you put these things together i feel like it it so nicely gets at this idea of this kind of like you don't expect for there to be this celestial relationship and it's not one that you even most of us would never look for this in our lives we wouldn't go out and be like wait a minute it's been 257 days since the or whatever you know we don't we don't like look for that necessarily in the yeah. sky and then when you have it revealed to you it's kind of it's kind of neat to think about how that impulse to say like wait this thing is happening i should write a song about it and that song should be called kiss of venus and my name is paul mccartney <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh yeah packed with illusions our world is turned around this golden circle has the most harmonic sound because yeah. I think that if you didn't know that this was inspired by this book, then, you know, some of these choices would, would be very perplexing, perhaps. Like, the kiss of Venus itself. Like, what is that? Yeah. So in the first little verse, I suppose, he says, The kiss of Venus has got me on the go. She scored a bullseye in the early morning glow. And that is probably a reference to the fact that Venus sometimes during the cycle appears as the morning star and sometimes as the evening star, right? Because sometimes, I think right now she's mostly out during the day and because of course the sky is obliterated by the sun, <laughs> you can't see her except yeah. for just very early in the morning. Um, so that's actually accurate for right now. Ooh. And I think actually that the latest conjunction was not that long ago, like within the last couple of months. Because she's fairly close to us right now. Yeah, you can tell when it's happening because Venus becomes very, very bright in the sky. Mm -hmm. And the whole morning and evening thing, this is a geometry thing, right? Because Venus is close, relatively close to the sun. Mm -hmm. So, you know, she can only ever be so far away from the sun. Like, she's never going <laughs> to be out fully, like, during the night because then she would be opposite yeah. of the sun. And she's in between the sun and us. So, yes. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yay, astronomy. Yay. <laughs> Shapes. Shapes. <laughs> Shapes and angles. Yeah. I mean, these are all very interesting things, but again, they're kind of hard to talk about just with audio. Like, it makes much more sense if you just look at it. So. Or it just makes sense when you 
turned it into a poetic lyric and you're like well yeah 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 <laughs> that too this is another way of understanding it um and then the next little verse is packed with illusions our world is turned around this golden circle has a most harmonic sound mm-hmm. so of course talking about that harmonic sound i don't really know about the golden circle thing except for that i mean this book is talking about the golden section and there are a lot of circles and it's probably just a poetic thing right um, the, the thing about the world being turned around. Well, so one of the things that happens in the book actually is that these diagrams are drawn from multiple perspectives. Yes. Sometimes they're drawn from the Earth's perspective. Sometimes they're drawn from the sun's perspective. And mm-hmm. you, you, depending on how you do that, you get related, but, but clearly different sorts of figures. So I like the idea that, and, and, and I feel like this is something that happens often when you start visualizing astrophysical systems, what you choose as your perspective radically can alter your sense of the dynamics of things. So if you've spent your whole life, I'm not saying Paul did this, but if you've spent your whole life just figuring like, oh yeah, everything just goes around like on a platter in the solar system. And then all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, if I viewed it from this place, it would feel very different. That can be quite alarming, I think. You know, I love, uh, I would highly recommend, look up, there are these animations, we'll post a link to one of these things, there are these animations of the paths that interplanetary probes have to go through to get from Earth to wherever they're going, because it's never a straight line, they have to kind of contend with an orbit first around the Earth, and then an orbit around the Sun, and then eventually they make it to where they're going, and sometimes there are course corrections, (laughs) and when you look at it centered on the Sun, they can look just like big spirals but when you look at it centered on like the earth or centered on the other body you realize like how many curves and weird shapes it has to make Mm. this is why it's very hard work you can't just send probes out into the solar system willy-nilly because it's actually very very hard to figure out all of these complicated maneuvers and here we're just talking about earth and venus they've been pretty (laughs) stable for a long time and yet obviously have these complicated relationships Mm -hmm. speaking of this is (laughs) probably completely irrelevant to the podcast but i just heard about this story about probably the fastest moving man-made object ever which is a manhole cover that got accidentally blasted off of some place that they were like testing a nuclear bomb (laughs) and it like was improperly vented so all the force went behind this manhole cover and it was like well over the escape velocity of our atmosphere (laughs) so either it burned up in the atmosphere or it like was projected into space and who knows what happened to it it could have crashed into jupiter for all we know (laughs) (laughs) the great manhole cover in the sky Wow. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I mean, I do, in in meditating on these kind of, we've, well, we've gone through like two little verses of the thing. Yeah. There are, there's not too much additional text, but I'm finding something happening in my little noodle here. You know, we kind of front loaded our conversation with all of the technical stuff which has no place in the song at all. I mean, it could, we could, we yeah, we did this kind of heavy lifting with the music, but I also, I just kind of love that the song, I mean, like you said, doesn't make it obvious that this is about planets, mm-hmm. right? We don't know if he's talking about planet Venus or goddess Venus or like... Venus fil- as a metaphor for someone. Yeah, and when you kind of take the whole thing together 
I think for both of us, and maybe for a lot of other people, you kind of get that there's something cosmic-ish, mm-hmm. right? Turns out you're right. Mm-hmm. And then it, it doesn't lose any integrity by avoiding any of that stuff. And I think that's something that I really appreciate because we do live in a world that's awash in astronomical imagery and music that's like, oh, here's this kind of spacey thing or we'll put some planets on the cover or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then the engagement I don't want to say that it lacks substance necessarily, but there's a lot of like stuff that's just sort of like, yeah, it's cosmic. And this is a song that is actually, I think, kind of thoughtful about the poetry of this particular relationship, but also what one can go through when you find yourself really thinking about it. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And this brings me to one of my favorite parts of the lyrics, actually, and that is... The third verse, which is now moving slowly, we circle through the square, two passing planets in the sweet, sweet summer air. Mm-hmm. And I I think he actually wrote the song during the summer, so you know, he's just describing things in the room. Not really. <laughs> <you know? laughs> but I think the circle and square thing is also a reference to this book, because like circle through the square, like are, are people like dancing in a town square (laughs) no No, i'm pretty sure that it's a reference to this part which is quote the ratio between earth's outer orbit and venus's inner orbit i.e their home is intriguingly given by a square so if you have a circle that represents venus's orbit and then you draw a square perfectly around it touching on all sides and then you draw a circle around the outer corners of that square then that is earth's orbit and that has a little diagram in here as well so yeah. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Another great <laughs> coincidence. Yes, yes. <laughs> but even that, like the idea of then taking that something born of the sky and kind of seeing it as this potentially, I mean, it's a, he's a, again, he's like a little ambiguous. So it's mm-hmm. potentially this kind of, you could read it as a metaphor, yeah, a relationship metaphor. I mean, the whole thing is, right? The kiss of Venus. Yeah. We're personifying our planets, which we've done since antiquity. Of course. Yeah. And I don't I don't study Paul McCartney, obviously, but I was very intrigued because he helped write the music for this like sci-fi futuristic video game called oh, Destiny. Yeah. And right. I think the original soundtrack was not all used. I don't really know the details, but they released it as a suite called Music of the Spheres. I don't know how much he had to do with the rest of the soundtrack, but he did write the like ending credits song, which is called Hope for the Future. And it has all kinds of references to the game, as far as I can tell. Like it has the word destiny in it, and it's talking about light and darkness, which are apparently like really big forces in the game. Um, but he did say that he specifically wrote it so it could be a standalone song and you didn't have to only know about it in reference to the video game so i don't know i i I, this is just two examples of his kind of space music that that you don't have to make the space connection but when you do it's really cool yeah i mean it is true he does not have a whole lot of space music he does have a lot of nature music Mm -hmm. and that's actually a strongly recurring theme throughout his whole throughout his output if not music about nature, kind of music about being in nature, going back to nature, or wanting to be outside and, you know, live a rural life and whatnot. So that occasionally 
you know, Mother Nature's son might want to look up at the sky <laughs> and see, <laughs> think about what's going on up there. It sort of tracks. Yeah. Yeah. There was one other thing that I found really interesting about the song, and that is the structure, like the overall yeah. form. And I think I can connect this. Ooh, to, go for it. To, connect, connect, connect. To the Kiss of Venus itself. Okay, so <laughs> it's uh, it's got three parts, as we mentioned. There's a clear verse part. You know, I just read the three texts of the three different verses. And this is the part that starts the song. Yes. And then you have this second part, which has the same text each time it appears. So you would say, oh, it's the chorus. But it doesn't really sound like a chorus. It sounds like a bridge to me, especially because of the fact that it ends on the dominant, right? Yeah. So the dominant... It wants to go back. The home. dominant wants <laughs> to go back home to the tonic. So you, this is not a type of chorus that you can end the song on because you can't end on the dominant or people will think it's not over. Yeah. Give me the tonic, please. So there's that. And then there is a third section, which is, I think more clearly a bridge mm-hmm. and that is played twice um these parts keep like circling back in different ways um, in different relationships to each other each time circling you say yes with relationships you say yes and he doesn't even end the song like at the end of one of these sections he repeats the first verse again in full at the end and then he said he just plays the part that says the kiss of venus has got me on the go and that is where he ends yeah. so it's like this is one of those songs where you could keep playing it over and over and over again and never come to a satisfactory <laughs> ending this is why we got obsessed <laughs> damn that paul mccartney <laughs> and his pop acumen <laughs> that's a clever interpretation i Thank like you. that yeah yeah, I mean, it is it is actually pretty great songwriting. Because it's also, it's a very short song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was stunned the first time I listened. I listened to it once, and then it was stuck in my head forever. And I was like, wait a minute. Why did that happen? I wonder if that is part of why that happened, actually. Mm. You just hear these little bits, and you're like, this makes sense somehow. And then it stops, and you're like, again, do it again. <laughs> and then a third time. I haven't listened to it thirteen times. Maybe that's um, the maybe that's the key. Maybe no, that's smart though. Because it also like it it weirdly parallels that stuff we were talking about with the harmony in that you've got these kind of just building block sections, mm-hmm. which also is something that he's been doing since the Beatles. Can't buy, actually can't buy me love is a decent example of that, right? Mm. I guess it begins with the chorus. You could say can't buy me love, right? Mm. But then it's sort of like yeah, but is that a chorus? I mean, I, yeah, yeah. Actually, I I was thinking about this with the because he he did this whole album he did a what is it called reinter reimagined oh yeah 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 uh, where he got different artists to like cover the whole album cover the different songs and the cover version of this one by Dominic Fike I think um I did listen to it it's I don't even know if I'd call it a cover it's very very different <laughs> it's like it's a different song. However, what it, he does is he takes that first verse and he makes that the chorus. Mm. And then he uh, he does include the bridge part and then he adds entirely new um, verses, which is an interesting way of doing it. He squares the circle. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> 
Thank you.